Hi, welcome back to Let's Talk About Race, the show where we cut through mainstream yelling in favor of in-depth discussions on race relations in the United States. Today, I'm very honored to be joined by a special guest, the president of the National Congress for American Indians, President Fawn Sharp. Fawn, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Good afternoon. Now, before we start, can you briefly give our listeners who might not know some familiarity with the National Congress of American Indians? How many tribes and members do you represent? What are your main goals and, and avenues of activism? Yes, absolutely. So thank you for this opportunity. Uh, the National Congress of American Indians uh, was founded in 1944. So we're the oldest and largest uh, intertribal Congress of tribal nations in the United States. Uh, we represent 574 tribal nations in every region of the United States, and we have roughly uh, 5 million tribal citizens across this country. So it's a very large, uh, well-established, uh, long-standing uh, Congress of uh, tribal First Nations. Excellent. And when you say Congress, so, but this is a nonprofit, it's not associated with the actual government entity? That's correct. So you guys being called the National Congress of American Indians uh, brings up a question for me. I definitely am not as familiar. I think I learned a little bit about Native Americans in school, and that was always what they're referred to. And, and Indian was kind of seen, I think, as the more antiquated term. But as far as the naming convention for Native Americans, American Indians, indigenous people, is there a right way? Um, does, it, does it differ by individual or by tribe? Or you know, what's the best way to think about naming convention for you know, Native Americans? Yes, we, we self-identify, uh, certainly with the name, the National Congress of American Indians, and uh, every tribe is different, uh, and that's an important thing to know and understand that uh, we are 574 distinct tribal nations, and you'll have some tribes that have the, the word Indian in the name of the, the nation. So I come from the Quinault Indian Nation, for example, and so we self-identify uh, in our name, utilizing the, the term Indian, whereas other tribes uh, don't have that term. They have uh, traditional names. And so it, it does vary, but uh, collectively, we do self-identify uh, as Indian in the National Congress of American Indians. All right. And as far as outside of the Congress, do you know if there, is that the most popular term? Is there a more spo most popular term? Well, it, and it really depends on the issue. Uh, when we talk about international policy, for example, uh, we work on human and civil rights, climate change, climate policy. In, in international circles, uh, we identify as indigenous peoples, and that's a term that uh, we've advanced in, in all areas of international uh, dialogue and discourse. Uh, domestically, we uh, identify as Native Americans. And sometimes we use these various terms interchangeably depending on the arena, the topic, and the issue. It can, it can vary. That's interesting. And it seems like with the international initiatives, as far as what you're putting forth, the choice to go with indigenous, is that specific for a reason? Yes. Uh, certainly the, the term Native American uh, is reflective of the Americas uh, here in uh, the Western Hemisphere, but there, there are over 100 million indigenous peoples in all parts of the world. And so the term indigenous peoples is one that uh, has gone through a lot of uh, international vetting. And it's a term when, when one is indigenous to an area, it's a term that's very uh, universal uh, for native peoples, no matter where they live uh, in the world. Well, I guess the term that has not been accepted and is generally seen as very offensive is redskin, which is the one that's been for the Washington football team for, I believe, 
80 years now. I think it was since the 1930s. But that's been one that I believe has been seen as derogatory for some time now, if not always. But, you know, recently with that name change being discussed, can you give us a little bit of history as far as the term redskin, how it's viewed within your community, and how it has been perceived as far as being such a publicly facing name for for a large sports team? Yes, absolutely. So the term itself comes from a very dark chapter of U.S. history, a, a chapter where uh, there was widespread and massive genocide and outright murder of our ancestors. And the term redskin uh, is ascribed to when bounties were put on the scalps of our ancestors and they were actually hunted for profit, for money. And it's a term that uh, is reflective of bloodshed, of annihilation, of genocide, and it's a very derogatory term that uh, for all of us uh, is just a reminder of a very dark time when uh, we were under attack. And so it's, it's, it's reflective of a multi-generational uh, set of traumas that uh, impacts our community deeply. I remember learning about Native Americans from you know, an, an early age and, and kind of genocide really is the only way to put it. And it was just kind of continuous up until present day. So it is a very charged history. And, you know, I'm sorry to, to hear that word has, has so much gravity, but I do want to discuss. So outside of Redskins, Native Americans in American sports is, are actually very common, both in logos and naming. I think you have, you know, the the Braves, you have the Blackhawks. So as far as that goes, I know there's a bit of debate, sports fans saying that it's honorary and it's meant to, you know, show the, the competitive, fierce nature of Native Americans. And I think there's obviously a difference between Redskin and, you know, perhaps Blackhawks or, you know, something that isn't have the same history, but I want to hear from you. Are all sports logos and names, are they seen as problematic, derogatory? You know, how is it, how are other, you know, references to Native Americans in sports viewed within the Native American community? Yes, uh, and I can speak directly uh, to the Congress. The Congress addressed uh, mascots for half a century. Uh, we have identified the use of uh, Native Americans as mascots is something that uh, is disrespectful. It's very offensive. And to put it simply, anytime we as a, a people in society are reduced uh, to, um, to be characterized and dehumanized and objectified in a way that uh, uh, paints us in a, a very bad way, it's something that we've, we've just found to, to be offensive. We're restoring our culture and our identities and that which was nearly wiped out. And for over 400 years, there was an active and concerted effort to completely erase our identity, to punish us for speaking our language. And we, this generation, is now being born at a time when tribal nations are making tremendous investments in restoring languages that were nearly lost engaging in cultural practices and ceremonies. Uh, we, we had uh, ceremonies for many things. And so a younger generation is now understanding the value of uh, tradition. And when we uh, witness others who don't understand the history, and they don't understand what goes into those ceremonies, what it means, the connection uh, with our ancestors, the connection with our creator, the connection with all things living and they objectify it and they use it in a way uh, where they think it's appropriate. And, and we can see just how truly 
really offensive it is to to those practices. And so we are uh, very active and engaging and wanting to help educate people. And we know that it, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's through dialogues like this and, and interviews like this and an opportunity to uh, engage and educate the broader community and the, the broader nation where we're going to make advancements. Definitely. Um, and I think that is something in general that is when you talk about, you know, cultural appropriation versus, you know, what's seen as uh, respectful learning from a culture. I think it's the reduction that is really the difference, right? And in, in understanding the significance of, you know, uh, a headdress versus just using it as a costume. So I actually recently had the opportunity to speak with Donnie Wetzel, who is the grandson of Walter Wetzel, who is actually a member of the Blackfeet Tribal Nation and the designer for the Two Guns White Calf logo, which is the Native American logo used by the Redskins from the 70s up until its uh, recent retirement. And they had, the family had actually made a distinction between the name and the term Redskins and the logo, which they had seen as not a way to include themselves in the conversation, include themselves in the imagery and history for the Redskins team name. So they said, if this is going to be the team name, maybe we can kind of at least bring some of our culture to the forefront. Is that something that you consider? Is that something that's relevant for the current use of Native Americans in sports team mascotting? It was uh, at a time in an era, I think, you know, when you're coming out of the the uh, 1960s. And so there is that period in time where uh, tribal peoples across the country begin to raise different ways of being visible because for the most part, the only way people saw us uh, was in movies, uh, when TVs and uh, fictional characterizations of who we are. And it was at a time when as, as a, a people and as a body, we are fighting just to gain some visibility outside of uh, Hollywood and outside of fictional things. But there were also times where, uh, for example, the, the depiction and the, and the picture for the professional team was used in, in other places here in, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we have the Seattle Seahawks. And I recall as a child at the Kingdom uh, seeing a, a, a citizen with a, a Native American carved, wooden carved um, hawk mask. And that was something that, you know, uh, back in that time where people just saw us uh, through a Hollywood or a fictional way, uh, th there was some sense of connection there that people see us. They see a part of who we are as a culture. And it was all these different ways that uh, we were trying to gain some visibility, to gain a voice coming out of an era where we, we just survived uh, an outright aggressive policy of termination. And so to understand that period and to understand the importance of wanting to have uh, some visibility, uh, that, that, was, that was critically important. Um, and fun. I just want to make sure that I understand correctly your point is coming out of the 60s, you're saying that any sort of visibility that you could get, you know, coming out of survival was good. Any sort of broad public awareness was seen as a positive. Now it's 50 years later. My understanding is you say there's been a much bigger reinvestment in the restoration of the languages, the culture of Native Americans. And so now you're trying to, I think, elevate that awareness beyond um, a very simple kind of stereotype in sports. Did I understand that correctly? Yes. Yes. Okay. Appreciate you kind of giving us some clarity there. 
but I do want to I do want to continue because it's not just about sports logos. You have mentioned addiction, um, poverty. One of the things that I've been very surprised about, I learned this about last year, but Native Americans are the only group in America that actually suffers police violence at a higher rate than African Americans, which, you know, in wake of the Black Lives Matter and, and you know, this scrutiny on police violence, if it saddens me a little bit to see Native Americans get left out. Is that something that you guys would like to see highlighted that you've been pushing as far as what you'd like to see in, in public awareness? Yes, absolutely. Because that is another reflection of uh, the in- invisibility of our issues, of our cause. And it takes a tremendous amount of effort just to raise basic awareness about critically important issues, uh, life and death issues for our citizens. People have a certain perception about tribal nations that you go to a reservation and they're poor, they're impoverished, they're alcoholics, they're drug addicted, and there's all these stereotypes, but they don't understand the uh, the systemic and widespread oppression uh, against our abilities to raise revenues, for example, like any other government possesses an inherent power to raise revenues through systems of taxation. Courts have ruled against us uh, in a, a dual taxation scheme, and we're limited in our taxing authorities. And then we try to invest millions of dollars in for-profit enterprises. And even when we invest and make uh, dollars through profits and commercial enterprises, the states and the counties continue to unilaterally uh, and effectively hijack our our funding for basic programs. So when you look at a reservation and you ask yourself, how is it possible for a country to meet basic needs when they have no tax base, no taxing authority, and every bit of concerted effort they make to raise commercial profits are effectively uh, hijacked and uh, unilaterally attacked. Uh, so those are things that uh, make it very difficult and, and challenging. And as a tribal leader, it, it's uh, it, it's very frustrating when I've been able to elevate issues outside of the United States uh, in a way that doesn't seem as, as difficult and challenging. And in some respects, it's almost as though there's an active way of trying to obstruct, uh, minimize, and uh keep out of the conversation many of the impacts uh, that face our communities. Sorry to interrupt, but you're saying when you bring up internationally as far as like UN bodies or just outside of a U.S. government? Um, both. And I'll give you an example. So uh, my tribal nation has been confronting the impacts of climate change during the entire tenure of, of my leadership. I'm only the ninth president elected since the turn of the last century. And I've had an opportunity to serve with three U.S. presidents at this point, and we've tried to raise uh, a sense of urgency about climate impacts. In in 2009, I went to uh, the U.N. Conference of Parties, COP14, in Poznan, Poland, and I had several uh, multilateral, uh, bilateral discussions and negotiations with um, officials to talk about climate change, and it was difficult to even have conversations in this country uh, 15 years ago about climate change. I would raise the issue, the room would get quiet, and then someone would change the subject. The glacier that feeds the mighty Quinault has disappeared, the Anderson Glacier. Uh, the White Glacier has nearly receded, and, and it's still barely there. That only leaves two other glaciers. And so that's to the far east. To the west, I'm having to relocate two villages to higher ground because of rising sea level and rising oceans. I've had to declare four national states of emergency 
in the 50s and 60s, we had millions of sockeye salmon return. Just in, in my grandparents' time as, as fishermen, they had millions of sockeye, which is a, a prized sacred sockeye that's unique to Quinault, that's part of our identity. And the year I got elected, we only uh, had 3,000 return. And so when we're having to relocate two of our villages, uh, when our glaciers are disappearing, when the ocean is becoming more acidic, when our salmon are depleting right in front of us, and we can't seem to uh, achieve any measure of uh, awareness or even the opportunity to try to tell that story, it's been very difficult. With the lack of visibility that you express of Native Americans in politics, in society, in media, if you were to try and bring awareness to the listeners right now or in general to the American public and you were to say, these are the issues that we want to tackle, what, were the, what would be the issues that you'd want listeners to understand that Native Americans face today? The top issue that I would advance with the average citizen in the United States and, and the top issue identified in my state of uh, Indian Nations address in January was a call out for truth and reconciliation. And I had no idea in January what was around the corner. I had no idea that this country would begin to uh, take a hard look in the mirror uh, with regard to race and political and social divisions and divide and uh, inequities and injustice. And chapter after chapter in this country, beginning with European contact in, in the genocide and annihilation of our citizens, is a dark chapter uh, that this country has yet to come to terms with. And the only way we are going to come to terms with that is by uh, engaging in a national discussion about race relations. And I, I firmly believe this country is now prepared to do that. And I've been quoting a lot lately a president who ordered the murder, mass execution of many natives. President Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address challenged this country. Can a nation so conceived and so dedicated long endure? And I was a question back then. And here we are, years later, and this country is still being challenged with that question. And the average citizen feels it. So uh, whether you're red, yellow, black, and white, um, we have some reconciling to do in this country because right now we are unhinged from those basic principles. We are unhinged from the foundations that made this country so strong. And so if I had one ask and one priority of this country, it is for tribal nations to have an open and engaged dialogue, national dialogue, so that that first chapter, we can begin to heal. I think for me, that's a big part of the reason I started the podcast. Let's talk about race is, is I really saw a lack of that conversation, you know, and I don't want to act like this podcast is earth shattering, but it has been disappointing to me at every level, how little I feel like there has been a dialogue. But what I would like to see is people in positions of power having public discourse with the people who are affected, you know, and I think that's really the gap. So you and I both are, are definitely very in favor of conversation. You know, you were mentioning earlier this image that most people have of a reservation as poor, high alcoholism, you know, things of that nature. I have to be honest, those are definitely stereotypes that, you know, I've seen as well. And without doing your research, I think that's kind of the image that's put out there. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah, so 
There are two, in my mind, two primary reasons for the, the longstanding and deep poverty and oppression. And one is our federal trustee, uh, the relationship with, we have with the United States. As you pointed out, uh, every treaty has been broken. So there's a, a failure of our, our political equality. Uh, while the United States talks about government-to-government relations with tribal nations, the reality is we do not have political equity. Our trustee is not honoring those commitments. In case after case, courts are ruling that when it comes to treaty conflicts, tribal nations prevail. And I pointed out to Governor Inslee during the the last case that went to the Supreme Court that I was a part of, uh, the Colbert case uh, two years ago, that in the longstanding history of treaty conflicts with the state of Washington, you're either a hallowed friend or a defeated adversary. It's, It's that simple. And so we must be true and honor those past commitments. And the other failure of the United States to uphold its treaty commitments is in the funding part of those treaty commitments. Uh, there are two reports by the U.S. Civil Commission on Civil Rights, one over a decade ago called the Quiet Crisis, and then just two years ago they issued another report called the Broken Promises Report. In both reports, they conclude not one federal agency is living up to its trust responsibility. The United States has chronically underfunded tribal nations on every sector, whether it's healthcare, education, uh, and in the face of that, our trustee has not only failed to uphold their commitments, but when we seek to set out to uh, empower ourselves and create commercial enterprises and do things to exercise our inherent sovereign powers to overcome those barriers, they also work aggressively to to challenge and diminish that that power and authority. And so... Uh, those two things, if if we could just uh, have a trustee and a relationship with the United States where they acted honorably with regard to tribal nations, you would see a, a much different uh, community in, in society. I often point out, too, that uh, there's, there's strength and pain and suffering. And so that, too, has made us resilient and strong. I mean, one can only imagine after everything that the Native Americans have got, had to go through that you know, resiliency would, would have to be the only way to survive. Um, and I commend you guys for that. In in media, there's a lot of the history of Native Americans, I think, you know, from the 18th and 19th century, but there's not a lot of portrayal of what life is like for a modern Native American. Do you mind just giving us a little bit of a sense of life on a reservation? What would you like us to understand about how Native Americans live their lives currently and not just in the past? Right. Uh, I, I would like to speak to uh, the most powerful part of our being in existence. I, I mentioned it earlier. Uh, there's tremendous strength in the spiritual life of, of Natives. I mean, there is that part of uh, stereotypes, but there's a lot of truth to the strength and breadth of our spiritual life. And that's something that You'll find on every reservation, you'll, you'll hear the drumbeat. You'll, you'll hear songs. You'll hear ceremonies. You'll hear a, a way that tribal citizens have not only been able to become resilient under tremendous circumstances, but find strength in that, find medicine in uh, our, our ceremonies and our spiritual life. And that's the part that people don't see. But if there was a way to see it, 
um, this country can learn a lot about uh, how one is balanced and how in the face of extraordinary adversity, a person can only uh, survive but thrive. And uh, I'll just give you a personal example and open up just somewhat personally with, with regard to my walk of life. Uh, I was raised during the height of the fishing rights controversies in the 1970s. During the Bolt decision, a lot of controversy on the waters, on the ocean, in the courtrooms. And, and so I grew up wanting to become an attorney. And I graduated from high school at 15. I went to law school. I studied international human rights at Oxford. I came back. After spending 10 years away, I came back to the reservation from uh, standards outside of our community. I had achieved a lot. But with regard to our culture, I was I was relatively young and, and a newbie. And uh, a few years ago, I was invited by our Canoe families uh, to go on a tribal journey. And along the way, we share songs, we share our ceremonies and our dances, and, and we share our traditional foods. And uh, I found that when I went out to the ocean, and we're in a canoe, it's not a manufactured canoe, but a canoe that's physically carved out of a large old growth cedar tree and we're in 14 foot swells and uh, I found myself physically feeling like I couldn't pull the canoe beyond the the breakers uh, when we got past the rocks I felt there's no way I could do this and there were young people in the canoe but our skipper began to sing some of our Quinault songs and I felt this extraordinary uh, once I resigned physically and mentally uh, it was like there was something within my spirit that reawakened, and uh, it was as though the ocean came to life, and I began to dance with the ocean, and when we sang a whale song, whales were breaching. When we sang an eagle song, an eagle would come uh, offshore and circle over our canoe. I felt this incredible connection, and it was a connection not only with uh, the animals and the, the things that correspond with our songs and our ceremonies, but I also came to acknowledge that that sacred highway was the same place that my ancestors traveled. And when I looked at the shoreline, it was the same pristine, uh, uncorrupted, clean landscape that my ancestors saw for centuries. Um, it's never been part of the United States. It was reserved by treaty and we've maintained its pristine character from when time began. And so all those things, it was a very powerful experience. And that is the one thing that uh, is unique to, to tribal nations that, you know, I've heard of people like Abraham Maslow and, and Stephen Covey. They talk about self-actualized human beings where at the very base you have selfish people. And then as a person matures, they become independent. And as they further mature, they become interdependent. Well, we are interdependent not only relative to fellow humanity, we were interdependent relative to the natural world, to all things living, to our creator. So while there's this perception that upon European contact, we were savages and primitive, we were actually very self-actualized, we were very mature, and we were very strong and centered mentally, physically, and spiritually. And although it's taken us centuries to, to get back to that, slowly, generation after generation, we are embracing that identity and, and we are growing stronger. We hope to take that lesson learned and help lead a national conversation because much of what we value is the same value that underlines this country. 
Yeah, I mean, if there was ever a time to for us to learn resiliency, I think 2020 is the year a lot of people need that. So <laughs> I hope we can learn a little bit from the native tribes. The last question I have before I let you go is, you know, on this show being called Let's Talk About Race, the goal is to have people to have conversations. So as far as what you see in how Native Americans are currently talked about, even by those who would say that they are supportive of the advancement of their rights, is there a way that you would wish that conversation would happen differently? Is there a way that you would, you know, as far as specifics go, that you could see the public conscious and awareness and dialogue around Native Americans start to improve? Yes. One of the things that I think would be effective is uh, directly engaging our young people. Uh, I often am so impressed with the up-and-coming younger generation of, of tribal leaders. We have a Native Youth Commission at the National Congress of American Indians, and not only our citizens, but look around the world at that up-and-coming generation that is so committed and their voice is so strong. I also know that there's another part of the young generation, they are being taught to hate. They're being taught to be bigots. They are being taught to uh, remain ignorant. And, and so unless we address that generation, there's going to be a blind spot that will lead to our children when they become adults. So the, the way I really envision uh, truth and reconciliation, uh, we need to establish the the mechanism, the protocols, and, and create multiple points of entry, but ultimately our children need to carry that message and be the voice because they are that generation that's being born into a society where they can be whole, where they're learning their languages, and they are truly um, the way our creator designed, made, and intended us. And it, it's going to be that generation that uh, needs to be part, a critical part of a national conversation. I appreciate you sharing all that with with us. I really do. I I have to say, it sounds like you might actually be optimistic about the future, which feels very rare these days. Yes, I am absolutely optimistic because we simply have no other choice at this this point. This is truly a test, and if we don't reconcile um, our actions to those basic foundational principles, this country will be lost. And I. That's simply not an option. We, we have to continue to fight the good fight. I really do admire your your resiliency, your optimism. I think right now it's, it's really hard for most people, I think, to be optimistic. So like I said, I, if there was ever a time to learn from Native Americans, you know, I think right now would be a great time for us to start having that conversation and, and learning from, from you all. But, but President Sharp, I really appreciate your time today. I really appreciate all the knowledge you shared with us today. And I really hope that this conversation continues. You know, it's a starting point and I hope that it continues for many people outside of here as well. Yes, thank you. And I, I couldn't agree more that uh, not only is this country designed and meant to endure, but we will endure. And so, so thank you. I appreciate the time. For listeners interested in learning more about the initiatives and resources for the National Congress of American Indians, you can visit their website at ncai.org. And for listeners interested in hearing the interview with Donnie Wetzel, grandson to the designer of the Two Guns White Calf logo, you can find all former episodes at letstalkaboutrace.net.